as Michael opens the word for us this morning. Thank you. Is this, is this on? Can you all hear me? Great, let me set up here. It's such a privilege to be here. Jyoti and my baby Naomi, as Nick mentioned, got a little feedback there, mentioned we got in here on Friday, flew from sunny LA, and uh, it was a wonderful flight. Went without a hitch. Naomi only cried a couple times on the plane, but mostly slept. And after the last few months of speaking and interviewing via Skype with the elders and some of you folks whom I already met, it's such a wonderful experience to be here and to finally meet you and put a face to those I've been corresponding with as well by email and phone. And Jyoti and I and Naomi just feel utterly welcome here. So we thank you for those of you who have been hosting us, who have already uh, fed us some good meals, and we are looking forward to getting to know you as we head down to the fellowship hall later and talk to you and even throughout the rest of the week. So praise God for his goodness. Praise God that we are here this morning to worship him. You know, we all come together with one like mind, and there's nothing greater than having the opportunity to hear the word of God and not just hear the word of God, but allowing the Spirit of God to work in our lives so that we can walk in Christ each and every day. And I am assuming that most, if not all of you, seek earnestly, desire to please God each and every day. And we're going to focus our attention today on a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Matthew. And you, you can turn there right now and just uh, put your finger on Matthew 16. And before we dive into scripture, before we dive into scripture, let's pray. And I, I was told that I have the next two hours to preach. Um, so, you know, make yourselves comfortable. No, it's always a running joke. An hour and a half. <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much, Nick, uh, for all your hard work in making this uh, an opportunity to finally get out here and all the hard work you have been putting into making this happen and making us feel welcome here. But let's uh, turn our attention to the Lord and his word and let's pray that he would bless this time. Heavenly Father, we come before you with eager hearts, eager minds. We love you. You have shed your blood for us. You died for us. And you have revealed to us your word, your perfect revelation, right before our very eyes. And it speaks to us clearly, sharper than a double-edged sword. It is your God-breathed scripture. It is able to perfect us and grow us and train us in righteousness and even rebuke us and challenge us and encourage us and edify us. And, O oh Lord, I pray that this morning as we delve into your word, that you would renew our minds, that we wouldn't be here today just as observers, but that we would be doers of your word, not just hearers. Lord, speak through me. I am just a vessel and speak to your people, your flock. Holy Spirit, do your intended work in all of our lives. 
And we thank you and praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. These words came from a man who was determined to unequivocally and courageously follow Jesus Christ in life and even in death. In the midst of one of the darkest and devilish regimes our world has ever witnessed. This, of course, was the Nazi regime, World War II. This was a tyrannical regime that replaced the cross with the swastika. This was a regime that demanded emperor worship over the one true God worship. A regime that murdered millions ruthlessly who did not bow down to this regime's godless agenda. And they even murdered millions of Jews and those who would not bow down to their uh, diabolical and evil worldview that they were enforcing upon all the people of that time. This was a, a regime who, who cajoled and brainwashed the so-called Christian church in that area. And they rather wanted them, Hitler wanted them to follow him who he proclaimed himself to be a Messiah of sorts. He was Lord to them. He did not want his people to follow the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The Christian man who, who penned the aforementioned words that, that I, I said in the beginning, he lived a costly life of discipleship. During these dark and nefarious years of blazing persecution, vigorous blasphemy, mass defection of the alleged church of Christ, giving allegiance to Hitler rather than Christ. And this was a time when the truth was suppressed. But this person was none other than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him. He was a man who gave his life wholeheartedly to following Jesus Christ. He was a Christian who not only understood the implications, demands, and high cost of following Christ, but he was one who followed Christ all the way to his death in 1945 at the young age of 39. And he died in a Nazi concentration camp. All the way up to his martyrdom, he resolved to be like Christ. He resolved to act like Christ. He resolved to speak like Christ. And he resolved, if need be, to even die like Christ. And he did this all in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he depended on the word of God to guide him. A, a student and friend of his who saw him die right in front of his very eyes said of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, 
brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely to the submissive will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's allegiance was to Jesus Christ. It wasn't to Adolf Hitler. It wasn't to anyone else. It was to Jesus Christ alone, no matter what threats came his way. When the majority of so-called Christians in Germany fell swayed to the Third Reich, they worshipped the idols of the government, prosperity, comfort, and prestige. Not so with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wanted to demonstrate to the lost world around him who Christ is by the way he spoke, the truth, and the way he lived. His life was not his own, was it? His life was not his own. It belonged to Jesus Christ. His, his life was one of picking up the cross daily, dying to his own comforts, dying to his own agendas, and dying physically as well for the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he ultimately did, he paid the ultimate price of being hanged in the Nazi gallows. And he put his hand to the plow to follow Christ, never to look back, even if it meant suffering, even, even if it meant mocking, even if it meant being ostracized and being lonely, lonely, and even if it meant persecution. Bonhoeffer also said, and perhaps some of you have heard this quote from him, a very famous one, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This, my friends, is true and authentic, biblical, Christ-centered discipleship. This is what ultimately Christ calls all of us to. This is the call and command for all believers. Jesus doesn't have just a, a select few of, of disciples who he picks to, to pick up the mantle and follow him wholeheartedly. No, he demands. He demands that all who wish to follow him to come and die. And today we'll be looking at this passage in Matthew 16, at a passage that expresses this glorious and blessed truth for all of us, for all of us who wish to go after Jesus Christ, wholeheartedly, audaciously go after Jesus Christ. So please, if you haven't turned there, Matthew 16, starting at verse 24, And we are going to read just to verse 27. Matthew 16, 24 to verse 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What a phenomenal portion of Scripture 
Jesus does not mince words, does he? He speaks clearly, straightforwardly, and he tells us precisely what he expects of his followers. Those, as he says, who wish to go after him. Now, before we look more closely at verse 24, it's, it's crucial to set up the stage and understand what happened just a little prior before that. And a lot of us know this passage quite well, uh, chapter 16 in Matthew. The previous verses, 13 to 23, are about Jesus asking that pointed question to his apostles when they were in northern Israel in Caesarea Philippi. And this was an area, Caesarea Philippi, where there was a plethora, a pantheon of Roman Greek gods that, that the people of that day worshipped. They went there and worshipped the gods and, and the idols. And this was a high and holy place that was set up for people to give honor and false worship, of course, to the gods of that time, lowercase g. And here Jesus is, he brings up his apostles to this area where there is a plethora, a myriad of, of idol worship. And Jesus asks this question, in this place, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answered, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, others yet say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is in verse 14. But then Jesus turned the tables and said, but who do you who do you say that I am? And that's when we get the grand declaration by Peter, who at one point will say something foot and mouth, and the next point will say something glorious about God. And as we know, this was revealed to Peter by the Father in heaven. And what did he say to Jesus? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. And then Jesus proclaims to Peter and the rest, that upon this rock, upon the rock of the truth that you just proclaimed, that I am the Christ of the Son of the living God, upon this truth, Peter, the church will be built. And the powers of Hades, the powers of hell, cannot overpower it. And then after that, he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. It wasn't yet his time to go to the cross and die. But he did tell them, something that would have shocked their ears at that time. He told them that he was to suffer and to die at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of the government, at the hands of those who hate him, that he was going to suffer and die and then be raised on the third day. And you can't forget that the apostles and the people, the Jews back then, were looking for a political conquering Messiah that would come and make their enemies a footstool. And they were expecting that type of kingdom be, to be set up instantaneously. And yet here Jesus comes, the one who just was proclaimed as the son of the living God, said he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he was going to be raised up. Jesus, what does this mean? And Peter even rebuked the Lord. Have any of you ever rebuked the Lord? It's not recommended. Because what happened immediately after Peter rebuked the Lord? Well, it went from one extreme to the next because this was Satan working through Peter at that time. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And then what does it say here? Get After he says, get behind me, Satan, in verse 23, 
Get behind me, Satan. Emphasis. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And then Jesus gives Peter and his disciples a heart-penetrating, unambiguous lesson on what it means to be his disciple. It's so important to understand those previous verses because, again, like I was saying, they were expecting glory automatically without suffering, without the cross. They wanted the crown before the cross. And so today, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at this portion of Scripture. And if you are taking notes, you might want to write down these two headers that will give us a framework of this passage. We are going to learn three commands first, three commands of discipleship. Three distinct, clear-cut demands of discipleship and then three motivations for discipleship so that you, so that I, can be the disciple that Christ expects us to be, that he calls us to be. Like I said earlier, Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't call just a few disciples to follow him wholeheartedly. Those of you who put your trust in Jesus Christ, this here, as we read in Matthew 16, this is what, this is what Jesus commands all of us as believers. So heading number one, three commands of discipleship. We see all of these commands in verse 24. So I would ask to redirect your attention to verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? First, number one, deny himself. Two, take up his cross. And three, he is to follow me. You can write those down if you want under that header. Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now, like I said before, Jesus is continuing this talk in Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful area up there. I was just there a, a couple months ago, and had, I, I had the opportunity to witness this grand, massive uh, rock-faced wall where they had a temple built, the Romans, to their gods. And I just was imagining Jesus speaking to his disciples while other people were following these false gods, and he was saying, follow me. While these other gods were uh, asking to be bowed down to them, Jesus was saying, I am God. You bow down, down to me. You follow me. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross. And when he says there, if you look at the beginning of verse 24, it says, if anyone wishes, if anyone wishes. Now, we have to understand when Jesus said this word wishes, it's not just a wishful thinking type of thought he is conveying here. This is a coming or going after Jesus that is a decision that you and I have to make with absolute resolution. It has to be deliberate. It has to be purposeful, and it is voluntary. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force anybody to come after him. But so if anyone wishes, these are the requirements, he says. It implies that it's a once and immediate thing. If you, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 9, this is a correlating passage of Matthew 16, when Jesus is calling disciples to follow him, it's a once uh, thing that they must do. If you remember Matthew, who was a tax collector, a, a vehemently hated man, he was sitting at his tax booth. Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me. Well, Matthew didn't just 
think, well, let me calculate what that entails in my life. Let me write down the pros and cons of what it means to, Je- to follow Jesus. No, Jesus said, follow me. Matthew got up and at once followed Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is implying here when he says, if anyone wishes to come after me. So if you're sitting out there today and you hear this, if you desire to go after Jesus, he wants your heart. He wants you to come after him at once. He wants you to deliberate, yes, but he wants you to put the hand to the plow and not look back. In Luke 9, there were people who had, who had myriad excuses. Well, I have to go bury my dad. I have to go take care of this business. And Jesus said, foxes have holes to sleep in, birds have uh, uh, nests, and, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But you follow me at once, immediately. And do you notice, I don't know what translation you're reading, I'm reading out of the NASB, but the clear translation is he must. Right before he gives the three commands, Jesus says, you must. Some translations say, let him if he wants to. It's a little too passive. These verbs, these words that Jesus is using here are clear-cut, straightforward commands. He must. If you want to go after Jesus, you must what? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where there's something called easy believism, where people just, you know, fill out this card here, say this prayer, and poof, you're saved, and there are no other requirements of you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's not biblical. Jesus has clear commands here that he requires and wants of his followers because he wants us to be like him ultimately. Yes, salvation is free. There are no works we can accomplish to receive the free gift of salvation. But discipleship following Jesus Christ is costly, including suffering, including alienation, if you bear the name of Jesus, including mocking, as we learned about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and including potential death. Philippians 1.29 says, with blessings in Christ also come sufferings. Romans 8.17 echoes that and said, if, if we indeed, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Paul said in Philippians, I want to also share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So yes, there are a multitude of blessings for us who follow Jesus, but we also have to understand that when we pick up our cross and follow him, there also is going to be suffering and persecution for Christ. The first command that Jesus lists here in verse 24, that you must do, and you can write this down as number one under the commands of discipleship, is you must deny yourself. We also see these lists in Mark 8 and Luke 9. It must be important if they are repeated in Scripture like this. Jesus probably said this more than once in his earthly ministry. You must deny self. To your human nature, what automatically comes to mind once, when, when you hear the words of Jesus saying you must deny yourself? It makes a lot, of, a lot of us feel uncomfortable. It's not natural. 
That is precisely why we can't do it in our own strength. We are weak, but we need the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to be enabled to deny self and carry out these commands. Now, a lot of times when we hear deny yourself, a lot of people take that the wrong way. A lot of times they're thinking, well, I have to go isolate myself and go live in a monastery and become a monk and just shut myself out from the rest of the world. Is that what Jesus means? When I was a, a missionary in India and I traveled to Nepal a lot, there were Hindus and Buddhists and a lot of religious activity going on there. And people would shut themselves out from the rest of the world and have no interaction. And they thought that this was a, a part of my religious duty. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus means here. Does it mean that we, that we give up all pleasures and all pursuits of enjoyment in this life? No, not necessarily. We know as Christians we, can, we have the most joy and happiness than the, than the world. So what does Jesus mean when he says deny self? Well, he's, it, it, it means to a degree that you, you give up the right to yourself. You, you give up the right to your will your natural inclinations and desires, and you, but you exchange that. You don't just throw it behind you, but it's like a great exchange. You take up God's will. Your desires become his desires. Your will becomes his will. You want to you wanna reflect Jesus' attitude when he was in Gethsemane and he, played, and he prayed, not my will be done, but thy will be done. It also means letting go of selfish desires, a me-too attitude. It means not grasping to earthly security or material gratification. That's all you live for. I grew up in the 1980s where the self-esteem movement became very prominent. And it was all about you're good, you're the best, everyone gets a trophy. And I remember growing up with that. And, and the self-esteem movement um, is not really the most biblical. What we need more is not self-esteem, but God-esteem. Less self-centeredness and more God-centeredness. And this is what denying self is. Our, our esteem, our identity comes from, as Christians, being in Christ, identifying with him, being in union with him, having the traits of Christ as we walk in Christ. But in that process, we are shedding the self because our flesh is strong still, but we work on praying and, and depending on God and, and having each other as the body of Christ to shed the self and deny self. Ultimately, are you in charge anymore? Who's in charge? Who has replaced you on the throne? God has always been on the throne, but you thought you were on the throne. God is on the throne. I love Philippians 2.21. It, it alludes to the fact that we must seek after Christ's interest, not our own. Most people go after the interest of themselves, the interest of the world, but Christ said he wants us to go after his interest. Paul said not many except Timothy was going after the interest of Christ. Other people were just focused more on themselves and the world. Speaking of Peter, who at one point, called Jesus the son of the living God and then said, Get be, you know, no way, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. He at one time, as we all know, denied the Lord three times. When he said, no way, I'm not going to deny the Lord, but he did. But then later on, as he was restored, as he repented, 
he gave his life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. And what happened? History tells us that he was crucified on a cross upside down in Rome. He literally denied self and, and died for Christ. Paul too. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, a verse that all of us should know. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We put Christ first in everything. He is the center of our life. We are now his doulas. As the Greek word says, it means slave. We are his servants. We follow him. He is our loving, caring master, and we follow his commands. No longer what we want to do. We want to follow him. Other aspects of denying ourselves includes not lording it over others. What are the two greatest commandments? I mean, this is the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. We put others first. Ultimately, we put God first. And don't mistake that when Jesus says, loving others as yourself, that we are to love ourselves more. The, the inference of that passage of that verse there is that we already naturally love ourselves. So in the same way that we love ourselves, we are to love others and sacrifice and, and put them first, put the interests of others first. That's an aspect of denying self. Another aspect is, and Romans talks about this a lot, especially in Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, we hate our sin. If you are a true follower of Christ, you hate your sin. You want to mortify, you want to put to death your sin. And you pray, oh Lord, I confess I have sinned, but Lord, restore me, help me be like you, cleanse me, and help me to follow you in every aspect of my life and to have a pure mind, pure heart, and we put to death every single day our sinful, our sinful inclinations, denying ourselves. I've been, we've been staying at, uh, with uh, Keith and Barbara, the Schwams, and it's been such a wonderful time talking to them about their daughter who is in the military. And I think being a soldier is such a, a vivid illustration of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, is it not? Even Paul talked about us being soldiers of Christ. And what does a soldier do? What is their singular focus in their military career? Even Paul says, we are not to engage in civilian affairs. We are to put first our mission and to listen to our superiors, listen to our generals and obey their commands. And as I've been talking to the Schwams, they've been telling us phenomenal stories about their daughter who is faithfully serving in the military and at times can't even call home because she has to focus on her mission. She has to focus on obeying the commands that her superior officers are giving her. And she does it faithfully. And what about us, those of us who follow Christ, who follow our heavenly commander. We are to deny ourselves and focus on following him. Unfortunately, people worship themselves. That's the default position of our sinful nature. We worship selves. They're lovers of their, their, themselves rather than lovers of God. They are their own masters. God isn't. They make a God in their own image. I've met so many people who have concocted this, this 
image of Jesus Christ that they would rather have than what the Bible actually says about Jesus. And of course, we are living in the world of social media where there are some aspects of it that are good, but more so than not, people are plastering themselves up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I don't know, what else, whatever else is out there, and it becomes a tool for narcissism and serving me, myself, and I, rather than what Jesus has called us to do, which is to deny me, myself, and I. And we just have to be very cautious about what we give ourselves to and working on denying ourselves. The reason a lot of people mostly focus on themselves is because ultimately it's part of our sinful nature, but because as the Bible says, those who are not in Christ, who don't belong to the kingdom of light, belong to the kingdom of darkness. Satan, he is their father, as Jesus told the people in Jerusalem at one point during his ministry. Listen to what Isaiah 14, if you want to turn there, you may. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15 says, a lot of people, scholars, agree that this is uh, 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 an example of who Satan is and, a, and a, uh, a dialogue about Satan. It's talking about a king, but it has characteristics about Satan. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, and we just get a glimpse into what, what it means to be self-centered, self-focused, self-worshipped, and that's what Satan is all about. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Now listen to all the eyes here. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Satan is all about I, and we must not fall into that trap that Satan tries to tempt us with. But rather, as Acts 20, 24 says, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Do you recognize the difference there between that, that those verses from Isaiah which reflect the, the attitude of Satan and even those who are going after the world and are not in Christ and the, the, the new Christ-centered, new creation attitude of Paul in Acts 20, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. But what did he do? He gave his life to the cause of the ministry of Jesus Christ in proclaiming the gospel to the nations, to the Jews and the Gentiles. This is what it means to deny self. Raising Jesus up and you becoming less. John the Baptist, I may decrease so that Jesus may increase. That should be our heart attitude. What is our second command in verse 24? You must take up your cross. Now, we here in our culture hear that a lot, or maybe if some of us are wearing a cross around our, our neck this morning, and praise God for the cross. 
put your shoes in the apostles during that time when Jesus said, you must take up your cross. What would have been going through their minds? Because they, as citizens of the Roman Empire, would have witnessed countless crucifixions, countless criminals being crucified horrifically on the roads of Palestine, on the dusty roads, criminals hanging up there with nails in their hands and nails in their feet for being rebellious citizens of that time. Of course, Roman citizens weren't crucified, but those who were, they got to witness that and they got to see the embarrassing torture that those people went through. And they would have been shocked when Jesus said, pick up your cross. Because again, they were expecting a conquering, victorious Messiah. What do you mean, pick up? What do you mean you're going to go die? What does it mean that we have to pick up our cross? Criminals of that time who were convicted of a crime had to carry their own crosses. Rome would allow them, as they were walking down the roads by, by those people who were picking up their crosses, this would reveal to the, to the people watching that they were, the criminals were under and submissive to the rule they had been opposing. Now the same is with Christians. Before we were in Christ, we were not submissive to the will of God. We were rebels. We had the enmity, we had the wrath of God abiding upon us as the book of Ephesians says. We were enemies with God. We were rebels to the core. But now, there's a new sheriff in town and we are now under his rule. But we are still ones who are called to pick up our cross. It is God's prerogative to direct our life as he wills. The Apostle John, what happened to him at the end of the Gospel of John? He told Peter that he was going to die a martyr's death. And Peter said, well, what about this disciple? Don't worry about him. He's going to live longer. And yet he did, and yet went to the island of Patmos and suffered there, being in exile. But Jesus is completely in charge of their lives. Now, we have to understand that carrying the cross, as a lot of us mistakenly understand, it's not our everyday, not necessarily our everyday irritations, our challenges, it's not necessarily having enough money, maybe having an irritating boss or mother-in-law. As some people say, I have to pick up my cross today. And some people think it's wearing a cross around your neck, an emblem of sorts. But what is Jesus saying here when he says, pick up your cross? Again, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. Each and every day, and it, it connects with denying ourselves. Each and every day, we are crucifying ourselves daily by dying to our wishes, our wants, and putting God and His Word and His commands above and first in every single thing. And of course, yes, it might even mean death for those who follow Jesus Christ. Our flesh is sinful. It's rebellious. It's stubborn. And like I said earlier, we must we must take pains to put it to death. We must count ourselves, consider ourselves as dead to self and made alive to God through Jesus Christ, as Romans 6 says. And the blessed thing is Jesus doesn't leave us to our own. He set the example. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And before this, remember, he said, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, and yet I am going to be raised on the third day. 
How many of us know that it's easy to follow Jesus Christ when life is going smooth, when there are no trials, when there are no tribulations, when there are no challenges? It's easy to say, praise the Lord during those times. But when suffering and trials, tribulations come into our life, it's more difficult. And that's when we usually cry out to the Lord, help me, for when I am weak, I am strong. And we need his example. We need his power for us to pick up the cross as well. When I was uh, in India, I moved there in 2006, and I was still a pretty young believer. And I was teaching the Bible the best that I could, to the best of my ability, to these young men who came from a life of addiction and a life of heroin and you name it. And this Muslim young man came to me and said, Michael, brother, you know, as a Muslim, I, I, I want to give my life to Christ. But if I do so, one of two things will happen to me. Either I will be ostracized and kicked out of my family, or they will kill me. What should I do? Oh, I've never experienced this back in New York when I was living there. What should I do? All I could do is bring them to the word. And I'm not really sure what word I gave to him at that moment. I'm not even sure what happened to him after that because he shortly left but he knew the count of, or the cost of following Christ. He knew he had to pick up his cross. And today, are we counting that cost as well and knowing that we have to pick up our cross and follow? Matthew 10, 37 to 38 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy, worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you're not willing to take up your cross, Jesus clearly says you are not worthy of him. Harsh words, yes. But in just a minute, we're going to be getting to the motivations because there's nothing greater than following Christ in this manner according to what he wants us to do. The third command of following Christ is, I'm sorry, the third command of being his disciple is that you must follow Christ. Still in verse 24, he says that you have to follow him. And following him is a continual everyday event. He says, follow me. He's not saying follow other leaders. Yes, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, but don't follow this denomination. Don't follow that leader. First Corinthians says, some follow Apollo, some follow Cephas, some follow Paul, and yet some follow Christ. No, our allegiance, our loyalty is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We are loyal to him. We are to be completely transformed from glory to glory. That's what it means to follow Christ. Our heart's desire as followers of him, as disciples, is to be like him, right? I remember that when I was a child, when I was seven or eight years old, I would follow my dad to the T. If he crossed his legs, I crossed my legs. If he told a joke, I told a joke. If he laughed, I laughed. And thus, I carried those traits, even into my adult life, of what my dad had. But we as followers, we want to have the same traits as Jesus Christ. And so we look into his word and we say, I want to go from one degree of glory to another degree of glory in becoming like my Savior, becoming like my Lord. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Listen to just a short list of what it means to follow Christ each and every day. And there are correlating verses that would go along with this. 
but just listen to some aspects and ask yourself, are these traits in my life? Am I putting these in action every single day as I follow Christ? It includes not having any other gods before you. It includes forgiving others when it's hard to forgive, even your enemy. It is, as I said earlier, being mocked, ostracized, even beaten, slandered for Christ, as many of our brothers and sisters are enduring even right now in other parts of the world. It's telling the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment and not equivocating on the truth of the word of God. It's preaching his word. It's worshiping him and seeking to obey his commands all the time. It's telling the truth when it's hard to tell the truth, especially as we live in a day of lies and deceit. And again, it's also being willing to die for the sake of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for not my name, for great is their reward in heaven. We follow Christ, my friends, to the very end of the age, as Matthew 28 says, for he will be with us. Again, are these traits of following him, of denying yourself, of picking up your cross, an everyday, an everyday reality in your life as those who call upon the name of the Lord as Savior, as your Lord. It's all about him. It's not about us. We don't come to church, do we, to get all of our needs fulfilled, all of our desires fulfilled. We call it a church service for a reason, don't we? We are here to serve. We are here to lift high and magnify the name of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to follow him if it means being ostracized from your family? I'm sure some of you might have paid that price already. Are you willing to follow him if it means losing a job because of your convictions? Are you willing to follow him if it means being ridiculed for striving to live a holy life in a world that hates righteousness? Going to church when people are having football parties instead and you're here under the word of God. Are you willing to follow God if it means standing up for the truth over and against the false and ubiquitous lies of our day? And again, are you willing to lay down your life for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many, 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 many more faithful ministers of God did before him. Ask yourself these things. This is what Jesus did perfectly. And he is our example and he will enable you and empower you to do so because it's good to recognize yourself as weak. Because when you recognize that and humble yourself, he will, he will enable you and cause you to carry out these commands because he did so as well. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said about this. Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot be Christ's servant if you are not willing to follow him. Cross and all. What do you crave? A crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns. If you are to be like him, do you want to be lifted up? So you shall, but it shall be upon a cross. Before we are glorified, before we reach heaven, before we see Christ face to face, we are just pilgrims passing through. And as we do so, we have to follow these commands of discipleship. What? Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow Christ. And I'm going to quickly go through the motivations. As I can see, we're running a little short on time here. But I want you to understand that to some of us, 
this might be super challenging as it was to the apostles. Lord, how do I do this? Why do we have to do this? Can't we just be whisked to glory right now and be with you? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to potentially die for the gospel? Well, Jesus in our second header gives three motivations for discipleship. And it starts in verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A paradox indeed, right? We see a lot of paradoxes throughout the scripture. Some of them being the last will be first. The weak are strong. Giving is receiving. And here we see one. Those who lose their life will find it. Those who lose your life will find it. But if instead you wish to save your life, if you wish to not obey the commands of Jesus Christ, you won't find true meaning and purpose in life. Matthew, in, in, in Matthew 7, there were many people who said, Lord, Lord, they, they, they had miracles, they, they, uh, they prophesied, but they did not obey the will of God. And we have to be willing to lose our life in order to find it. Because when we deny ourselves, we are, we are going to find true, abundant life in Jesus Christ. Someone once said, a faith that is not worth dying for is hardly worth living for. True and abundant life and true meaning come only by knowing and following Christ and perhaps even dying for him and for the sake of the gospel. Pick up your cross, lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. The second motivation is and we have to understand in the world that is dying and lost, we have to know the value of our souls and the value of the souls of people who are surrounding us who don't know Jesus Christ. So the second motivation is to assess, to know the value of your soul. Most people around us, most of those who are sinners are going after fame, fortune, pleasure, success, prestige, cars, lavish homes, reputation, body image, drugs, self, 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 me, myself, and I. But this isn't what identifies us as followers of Christ. The follower of Christ recognizes that his soul, the part of you that is immaterial, the part of you that can't be seen, the part of you that is your life, that defines who you are, the soul is what either goes to heaven or hell. The soul is eternal and we must assess the value of it and base our lives around filling our soul, feeding our soul, and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who, uh, of Jesus Christ, because we know that either their soul is going to one of two places, heaven or hell. And people's minds need to be directed on heavenly things rather than on earthly things, as Colossians 3 says. Now, as a caveat, I want to make sure that you understand that following Christ, assessing the value of your soul, losing your life to find it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't enjoy God's creation. You don't enjoy the good things that he has given to you in your life. You do. But ultimately it means putting him first and his things first. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
in him. The love we are to have for Christ must surpass all other affections. We must consider all other things as hatred, as rubbish, as Paul said in Philippians 3, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Do you consider all things in your life to be even rubbish and hated over against the glories and the beauty of having a relationship with Jesus Christ? So today, I encourage you, assess the value of your soul and pray for those who you know who don't know Jesus Christ and pray for their souls because ultimately that's what's most important, preaching the gospel. And thirdly and finally is our third point, our third motivation of, of, of discipleship, of following Jesus Christ, is anticipate Christ's coming judgment. Verse 27, anticipate Christ's coming judgment. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus transitions from the present world to the future coming of his glorious second return, which will be a, a coming unmatched, in unmatched glory, unlike his first coming when he came in a humble manger. He's going to come in blazing fire. He's going to be the conquering Messiah, but he's also coming as the judge. He's coming as the judge. And that is one of our motivations as followers of Jesus Christ because he is going to mete out rewards for those who have, faith, who have faithfully followed him. How many of you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? I know I do. I can't wait to hear those words from my Savior as I seek to faithfully follow him. And this motivates me to follow him more and more and to obey his commands, to deny myself, to pick up my cross, because I know this life is momentary, it's transient. Our momentary afflictions are light and are not compared to the heavenly glories that you and I are one day going to experience in heaven for all eternity. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And this verse in verse 27 is more of a positive as aspect of judgment for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. Knowing that Jesus Christ gives rewards motivates us. It should motivate us to obey his commands as mentioned before. And again, my friends, rewards are given those to those who deny self, who pick up your cross, and to those who follow Jesus. Jesus Christ to the very end of the age. I hope you're motivated by that. Not necessarily just to get rewards, but you love your Lord because he loved you first. You want to follow and obey his commands. That should be a natural outpouring of our attitude towards Jesus Christ as believers every single day. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Abiding in Jesus equals walking like Jesus. Walking like he walked, denying self, picking up cross, following his examples, his words, his commands. Abiding in Jesus means losing one's life to gain it, understanding the infinite eternal value of your soul and awaiting his judgment of rewards with great anticipation and being with him and being like him. But there's also a subtle warning here. 
if you are not abiding in Jesus today, if you have decided to go the other way and you have rejected him, you, 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 you live the opposite life of what Jesus is proclaiming right here. You live for yourself. You don't live for God. You go after instead the pleasures of this world at the expense of your soul and you follow sin. You belong to the kingdom of darkness by following Satan and not following Christ. And sadly, those who do not bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will lose their life in hell, an eternal hell of punishment in enduring anguish where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. When you die, it's too late because as Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed man to die once and then what? Judgment. But right now, as the clock is ticking, as you still have breath in your nostrils, right? for God does not want anyone to perish, but he desires for them to repent and turn to him. And he is patient with you and faithful. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can call upon the name of the Lord, confess your sins, confess your need for a savior. Confess that, yes, Lord, I have turned my back on you. I wanted nothing to do with you, but I realize now by your abundant and amazing grace that you are Lord and Savior and that I need you in this life and I need you for all eternity. I need to be reconciled to God the Father because Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And when you come to Jesus Christ, all your sins, past, present, and future, will be washed in the precious blood of the Lamb because he went to that cross and he died for you in your place. Imagine that. The punishment that you deserved, an eternity in hell, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, obeyed God's commands perfectly, he went to that cross and he said, your will be done. And he died in your place so that you could have a reconciled relationship with God that will last for all eternity, forgiven of your sins, justified, and you will be glorified as well. And then he says to those who believe in him, any one of you who wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. This, my friends, is the story of the gospel. But as those of us who are sitting here today who seek to serve the Lord every single day of your lives as disciples of Jesus Christ, know that this is what Jesus expects of you. These are his commands, but he also motivates you because you want to be like him. You want to walk like him, and that reflects the true fact that you are saved. Amen? So let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to strengthen us to walk in this manner as followers of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we once again come to you needy, beggars who are weak, and yet because you dwell inside of us, because your Holy Spirit is present, because your Spirit guides and directs us, 
and fills us with wisdom and understanding of your word. Oh Lord, how we need you to be able to live a life of obedience and discipleship. We want to please you, Lord, in our faith, in our walk, and we want you to be glorified. We don't want to bring any attention to ourselves. We want your name to be magnified, the matchless name of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we go from here, as we interact with each other, as we go about our week in the workplace, in the family, wherever we all may be scattered in the following week, help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow you. And help us to anticipate with great eagerness that day when you will come back and receive us and you will give us your rewards, but the ultimate reward reward will be seeing you face to face and hearing those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we love you and we continue to worship you in singing and as we go from here in fellowship, may you receive the glory and the honor in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.